We are back and speaking with James Randi, conjurer and investigator extraordinaire. So investigators at Stanford Research Institute over on the peninsula uh, near San Francisco, I think with government money, we're examining Uri Geller and I guess buying into his act uh, for a while. Of course, you, you stymied his efforts in The Tonight Show and scores of other times. Can you talk a bit about, uh, about what Geller was really doing when he was claiming psychic powers? Well, he bends at spoons. Now, that's not much of a claim to fame. You know? <laughs> what do you do for a living? I'm a spoon bender. <laughs> Duh. What kind of a profession is that? But that's what Geller does. He's from Israel. He's a magician. He simply does tricks that any kid can, can learn to do. And they do learn to do his tricks once they see him do it. They realize what's happening right there, but the adults are fooled by it. He simply does it. He bends the spoon when nobody's looking. Now, that's the entire explanation of it. It's not more complicated than that. There's nothing very uh, seriously involved about bending a spoon. You simply do it by grabbing it in both hands and pulling on it, and it bends. Now, he does that behind his body, of course, as he walks across the room to get over to the window for better light or something like that. And uh, when he shows it again, he's concealed part of it with his hand, and he reveals it very slowly, and it appears that the spoon bent in his hand without him putting any pressure on it. It's that simple. But the magicians can fool scientists so easily, it's astonishing. Because scientists, they deal in a real world, a real hard world of physics and chemistry and actualities. They're not uh, designed or able or educated enough to understand what a magician does. And when I say magician, I should be using the term conjurer, which is my favorite way of saying it, because... It's uh, In the U.K., it's frequently used. A conjurer, according to dictionary definition over there, is someone who approximates the effect of a magician. And we, we call it ourselves over here in, in the uh, conjuring business. We call ourselves magicians. We're not. We're conjurers. We approximate that effect. You, you have a wonderful mentalist demonstration at Ohlone, and, of course, everyone was like, how did you do that? And you pointed out, well, I tricked you all. Uh, and I guess you were dabbling in being a fake psychic or mentalist in your youth. And I just have to ask, were you ever tempted to make yourself an Uri Geller to, to fleece people? Oh, never, no. You, you can't do that to people. You, you change their philosophy, you change their point of view and their knowledge of the real world. And it's just not fair to do that sort of thing. Uh, even when I do my lectures, I always tell people before I do the demonstration, what you're about to see is being done by trickery. It's called mentalism. And mentalism is simply a, a fancy name for tricks that are done apparently with the mind. And I, I do some pretty heavy stuff with mentalism. Some of the mentalism I did, what I did at Ohlone, was that the one where the girl puts her finger down on a page in a magazine? Yes. And chooses a word? Was yes. that what I did at yes, Ohlone? Did. I don't remember. Yes, you did. So that particular demonstration is my own invention, I'm proud to say. And uh, some of the magicians are little puzzled over it, though I have shared it with a couple of the major people in the business, uh, simply because, hey, at 87, I don't expect to be around forever, you know, I'm going to try and do the very best I can, but I figured that I should share that with the, the fraternity of magicians and, uh, and sorority, too, because there are lots of good women magicians out there as well, but uh, I, I decided that I would share it with the profession, and I revealed uh, 
my my methods uh, on that particular demonstration to several of the leading people in the business. Well, it was a damn good trick, sir. Uh, oh yeah, I like that one particularly. I want to note that that, that million dollar offer from your educational foundation for genuine psychic phenomenon that uh, that still stands. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh it's still there, still in full force. Oh yes, one million dollars and. Uh, no arguments about it. You simply declare what you can do under what circumstances with what accuracy. Now, <laughs> that sounds very simple, just three simple stages of making up an application. And I ask them that they keep it down to two paragraphs. I don't say how long the paragraphs can be, but you would be amazed at what we get here. Either we get a, a description that you can't read or you can't make out or you can't understand it, or they send you as many as three or four pages of foolscap on both sides and written down the margins as well to make sure that they give you a complete story of what they think they can do. And uh, I just send it back and say two paragraphs, and I usually don't hear from them again. I'm wondering about the other side of the coin here. You've witnessed a lot of phenomenon over the years. Have you ever seen anything left just saying, well, the jury's out on that. I can't say one way or the other how to explain that, that trickery or, or, or to explain it, period. Well, surprisingly, no, because uh, uh, as a teenager, I started at the age of 13 or 14 to do things like mentalism, and I got to be fairly adept at it, to say the least, and uh, I've, I've gained a considerable reputation in the conjuring fraternity, uh, and of which I'm very proud. Uh, I'm a member of the Inner Magic Circle at the Magic Circle in London. Could you imagine? With Gold Star yet. Oh, goodness. I, uh, how, how glorious can you get? <laughs> but uh, I, I have obtained all this expertise and, and knowledge and panache, let's say, over the years. And uh, I found that it's, it's very rewarding to me to be able to do it. But as I say, and I go back a bit here, I always want to make sure that my audience understands what they're seeing is a demonstration of skill. It has nothing to do with really doing magic. And that's very hard to convince some people. Because I, I will actually get people after a performance sometimes when we're just chatting at the edge of the stage. I will get uh, uh, some fellow will look at me and say, Oh, I like when you did so-and-so and such that. That was very amusing. But when you told the woman her telephone number and you had never met her before, now that was really ass fee, right? <laughs> And I always say, oh, no, 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 that's not ESP. That's a, an example of, uh, of mentalism. And they look at you, and they'll often walk away at that point. And then they'll say, tell other people, oh, he lies. He said, that, that, that couldn't have been a trick. That, that was not a trick, what he did there, but he told the woman her phone number. <laughs> and uh, just because I haven't given them the entire explanation of how it was done, uh, they seem to want to come to the conclusion that that had to be real. I guess if I pulled a rabbit out of a hat, they'd probably say, well, that was not a real rabbit, or the rabbit was trained to do this, that, and the other thing. They come up with the strangest, <laughs> the most bizarre explanations for how these things are done. And 99.4%, uh, I've estimated, of their explanations are absolutely wrong. Well, you've got 10 books to your credit and counting at this point. Uh, if listeners wanted to snag one or two, I think some listeners might want to do just that. Well, which ones would you steer them to? Uh, Flim Flam uh, is, is one of my very first books. It's my second book that I wrote, as a matter of fact. And it's the most general book on the, 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 the subject of examining the so-called paranormal. And I recommend that because it's, uh, it's very basic, very basic, and it covers the... Uh, 
the spectrum rather well. It's not a huge book to read. It can be done very easily. And if you go to uh, uh, to the, the various book dealers and whatnot, uh, on the Internet is the best way to do it. Get a used copy. I think the used copies of my book, Plum Flam, are much more interesting than the new ones, simply because they usually have notes in the margin from, from readers. You would be surprised the number of times that I have people coming to me with very well-used and very well-thumbed copies of my book, Flim Flam, and there's marks all over it and everything, and they, they ask me for a new copy, and, uh, of course, they always get a new copy, but I, I find that when you read those, the, the comments that they put in the margin, it's very, very interesting to see what their first reactions are to it, and I often remind them, uh, I've got the copy of your book that has all your notes in it, <laughs> and they sort of back off when, uh, when they want to come up against me after that. You were well acquainted with some figures that we've admired a great deal in this program, but unfortunately we will never have the chance to meet, uh, particularly the late, great Isaac Asimov and also Carl Sagan. Uh, could, could, you, could you share a tale or two about these fellow skeptics? Carl Sagan Day just occurred a couple of days ago. Uh, we we uh, have a local group here that are trying to promote getting a Carl Sagan Day declared by the government. I don't know what our hopes are of doing that, but Carl was an absolutely astonishing man. He died at the age of 62. Uh, that's not fair. I'm 87. Come on. Uh, how come I get a, a lifespan like that? And a guy like Carl Sagan, who contributed so much to our knowledge of the real world, he had to be taken away, as they say, at the age of 62. I find that just unfair altogether. But that's nature. It's the way it works, and it's cruel and it doesn't really care very much. But what he did in the time that he was with us, that short 62 years, it's hard to believe that he's been gone that long. Uh, just astonishing to me, and I, I miss him greatly, as I miss uh, Isaac Asimov as well. Isaac was <laughs> was a character and a half. He was, uh, he was such a, a wonderful character, as I said. A, a very, very strange guy in many ways, and... Uh, Whenever I called Isaac, I lived in Florida for quite some time. I'm still living in Florida, uh -huh. and he lived in New York City. And when I would call him, he would answer the phone with, Asimov here, just quickly like that, and you would hear, that was a selectric typewriter, an IBM selectric <laughs> typewriter going in the background. He was one of the fastest and most accurate typists in the world, literally, not many People know that wow. about Isaac, but he won all kinds of prizes as a kid for typing and typing very, very accurately wow. and very quickly. They actually had to have the IBM company strengthen the return springs on the, the little speedball that was uh, in the machine, if you remember those typewriters. Uh -huh. uh, they had to increase the strength on the return springs because he typed faster than the typewriter could handle it. And, and that's astonishing that he could do it. And he did it so beautifully. What, what a character and a half. And, wow. Uh, oh, goodness. I think of him so often, and I think so often of questions that I could have asked him and never got around to doing. I want to close and ask, what among your many accomplishments are you most proud of? Well, I think that the exposure on the, on the Johnny Carson show of uh, Peter Popoff was very effective. It straightened out a lot of people, but Popoff, as we said at the beginning of this conversation, He's still in business. He's still doing the same old shtick. 
He's still lying to people and stealing their money. So uh, you have to look back on it and wonder, was it worthwhile? Yes, I think it was, because it considerably, I think, slowed him down, uh, to say the least. And uh, I'm rather proud of that, and I'm proud of the fact that I get letters from people very frequently. Uh, My mailbox just continues to fill up with them, saying, uh, you made a big change in my life. And I get that at the end of lectures as well. I get people coming to me at the foot of the stage with tears in their eyes, looking at me and saying, Mr. Randy, you made a big change in my life. Now, you can't buy that. You cannot buy that particular comment from somebody, no matter how hard you try to set it up, for someone to come to you voluntarily and and give you an accolade like that. Something I'm very, very proud of. Well, we thank you very much for speaking with us and, and for all the good work you have done. We hope you'll keep it up. And, 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 and I'd like to say that we're, we offer you our services at any capacity which, which we can be of help, and you're welcome on this program at any time. Thank you very much, sir. It's good to speak to you and to your audience. We've been speaking with magician and investigator James Randi, who by his own reckoning is a liar, cheat, and charlatan, but also an incredibly honest man whose sage advice we think you need to consider at every opportunity. And unfortunately, that does it for today's program. Our thanks to James Randi, of course, and also America's foremost political comic, Mr. Will Durst. On next week's program, Graham Smith will be bringing back to the program Lester Lusher, Ph.D. student here at UC Davis, to talk about his work on the effect of shared ethnicity between students and teaching assistants as regards grades. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. My thanks to Graham Smith for bringing this show to you today, which we're confident will stand up with other programs which we titled The Best of Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week on Thanksgiving. <laughs>